everyone, and welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Chamber's Power of Partnerships podcast. For those of you who have not tuned in before, my name is Becca Luderschmidt, and I am the Director of Communications and Design here at the Chamber. I, along with Lauren Spence, our VP of Major Events, are your hosts, and we are here to keep you up to date on the latest events, announcements, and promotions happening throughout the Lehigh Valley. We have a very special episode today. Our president and CEO, Tony Ionelli, will be hosting a discussion alongside Dr. Brian Nestor, the CEO of Lehigh Valley Health Network. But first, as always, I wanted to let you know about some of our upcoming events. Coming up next week on August 26th is our Main Street Grant Awards reception. This event is always so great. We'll be showcasing completed Main Street projects, raising money for next year's Grant Awards, and of course, bringing our supporters and recipients together. This year, the reception will be held at Northampton Country Club, and we will be practicing social distancing and following all CDC-recommended guidelines to ensure the safety of all of our guests. Another big event we have coming up is our Lehigh Valley Commercial Real Estate Outlook on Tuesday, September 15th. This will be a virtual event this year, but don't worry, it is still going to be a great program. There will be presentations by Lehigh Valley Planning Commission's Executive Director, Becky Bradley, as well as Lehigh Valley Economic Development Corporation CEO, Don Cunningham. There will also be a panel discussion led by our very own Tony Ionelli called What's Trending in the Borough and Burbs. If you're interested in learning more or registering for these events, you can always visit the events calendar on our website at lehighvalleychamber.org or flip through the latest issue of Connections Magazine. To make sure you don't miss out on any important announcements, be sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to this podcast. Now, it is my pleasure to pass over the mic to Tony to kick off our discussion with Dr. Brian Nestor. Hey, welcome everybody to this week's uh, Game Changers. And as you know, we've had very, very prominent leadership within the Valley that have been on this show. We're outside today because we want to celebrate. Summer is coming and it's time for us to sort of get out of our houses and make this world come to life. I can't think of anybody that has been more of a game changer. I know, Brian Nestor, you're probably tired of me saying this, but when we were in the midst of this pandemic, we needed someone who would allow us to sort of understand that we had, to the best of your ability, control of COVID-19. And boy, you displayed that like nobody else. So Brian Nestor, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. Uh, We've had just a marvelous team that has really risen to the challenge. Thanks, Tony. You know, I think like all of us, even in business, if you think of this next phase, Brian, and business right now serving outside and trying to figure out how to make this all work, even with the chamber, we're, we're going into the offices now, but in shifts and so on. Is it safe to say that, again, that in the initial stages of COVID-19, you too were, I'll use the term flying, you know, building a plane while you were flying it, you know, what, what was working, what, what practices weren't, uh, what medications were working. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And uh, I think that your analogy or your metaphor there is fantastic. Uh, it really was. Uh, we were building things as we were, you know, taking in, uh, you know, the hits. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we've now separated upon reflection. <laughs> we've separated uh, our response into three areas. And we call it phase one, phase two, phase three. And phase one was that initial response. How do we respond to quickly shut down those operations that would cause a spread and make certain that we could care for COVID-19 patients well, as well as non-COVID-19 patients? I'll be honest, that's the clinical engine that exists in our network, and it just responded. Strong infection control, lots of common sense about you know routine social distancing and hygiene and the appropriate PPE, and we did that. But I'll tell you, uh, 
while we envisioned, oh, sure, we've done it before, we've done it with SARS, we've done it with H1N1, we've done it with other challenges, big flu uh, 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 epidemics, uh, we've been able to handle that. This was something very different. And what we realized is we needed better information. So, you know, as you're, you're really building the technology in the plane as you're flying to try and have daily hourly surveillance. So I think IT played a big role in that early phase. So would that be, Brian, Esther, saying again that this was new, uh, that you were trying maybe, again, different procedures, different medications, and in stage one, being able to get together, I don't know how that in a hospital standpoint, medical groups getting together saying, hey, this is working, this not so much, we have to move. I mean, was that, did you have those kinds of almost uh, weekly or at least, week, at least weekly discussions? Yeah, actually, early on in March, on uh, March 9th, the, the Network Emergency Operations Council, we call it NEOC, which is a group of about 80 managers across the network representing everything from supply chain to pharmacy. Uh, that, that group exists, but it lies dormant until we have a crisis. So that was um, activated on March 9th. Uh, two days later, uh, we actually activated a new council, uh, which was the CEO council, um, which then uh, took the inputs from NEOC every morning at seven o'clock, tried to translate them into actions that would occur throughout the day. And then we met every day at five o'clock again. In the, that early, in the first three or four weeks, those meetings ran, you know, two hours in the morning, two hours at night, because so much was happening. Um, I would tell you it became a pretty well-oiled machine. That would, those meetings were twice a day, seven days a week for almost two months. And uh, we're now down this week. We changed it. We're down to two days a week um, because things have stabilized. But uh, being able to take inputs from across the, the, every region, every county, um, and make certain that, because whatever we did in Lehigh County was different than what we had to do in uh, Luzerne uh, and different than we had to do in Monroe and or Carbon. So uh, it was a lot to understand early. Uh, but those groups met, uh, and uh, by the way, independently. So NEOC continues to meet every single day right now uh, until we are stabilized. I think as we uh, intersect uh, the fa- uh, green phase that the state uses, the red, yellow, green, when we hit green, we'll probably be at a stable point where we can now get back down to routine business, keeping track of our COVID-19 metrics, uh, you know, probably two or three times a week, and then make certain with our surveillance that there's no blip up. Yeah, I love some of the things that you did. I know when we did in Business Matters, we talked about some of the, really some of the sites that you in a sense parked. So if this was, the growth was as large as we were concerned it would be, you would have sites ready to go uh, that were available that you in a sense that you had had set aside just to treat COVID patients. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of shifting of business. So uh, as you'll know, as you recall, uh, Monroe County got hit first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so LBH Pocono had our, our Sentinel case um, and was a very sick person right off the bat. Um, we were worried that um, it took they took such resources that what would happen if this scaled up? And it did. Fortunately, it didn't scale up to um, really what we expected. It got about 50% to 60% as bad as we thought it would get. But when you had those surges, uh, Pocono was completely booked in the ICU using massive amounts of PPE. And we chose early on to start to offload them, bring them down to available capacity down in the Allentown area, either at Muhlenberg or at Cedarcrest, so that they could take care of the next four that were coming in. 
And then to our surprise, and not, not anymore, but Route 80 is the corridor to Manhattan. That's what makes uh, the greater Lehigh Valley really a satellite epicenter of Manhattan and North Jersey who got whacked with this. Um, Hazleton got whacked during about a two-week period of time. And we were routinely, their ICU was completely full, really intense uh, ICU care. Fortunately, we have a great team up there. But we, the, the way we could help them was offload those patients. We would transfer some down to give them a breather waiting for the next group to come in. It was wonderfully uh, orchestrated through our critical care teams to be able to make sure we load balance. By the way, you also have to make sure that the, the, uh, the, the frontline providers, the critical care staff, and the, the medical surgical staff that were caring for those that were convalescing, that they remained healthy. And you always had another healthy team on the bench just in case you had a rapid spread. And we had a couple. We probably had three or four little sentinel uh, uh, exposures where um, uh, one person led to another and we had to take at any one time 10 to 15 people out of the game uh, for 14 days. And everyone dealt with this the same way. What, what I really I was thinking today, uh, the, the history of uh, Lehigh Valley Hospital is uh, you've typically had a doc as the president slash CEO. And at a time like this, boy, I think I really, I mean, your world shifted from, if you will, the, the healthcare business uh, to crisis management and saving lives. And do you think that's, I, I don't know that that's, that's uh, a foregone conclusion that will always be a doc, but do you feel as the CEO, thank God that you had the experience that you had, that you were a doc, that you were in emergency rooms for a lot of your professional lives. Uh, how did that, play into it. It had to be, it had to help, I guess is my question. Yeah, well, so uh, as an ER doc, I can only see it the way I see it, right? That's the problem. So there's an inherent bias there. But I would see, here's what I would say. I would say that, uh, you know, any organization that has clinical leadership uh, 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 in and the uh, some of the top jobs, if you will, that brings experience from whether you're a nurse or a doctor, or a respiratory therapist, or a physical therapist, or anyone with a clinical background, um, when these kind of events hit, you actually feel normal uh, because it's kind of what you what you do. I think that lends an advantage, but I would also say for organizations that don't have a clinical leader there, as long as they're unleashing that clinical that that clinical resource to take the lead, um, you can get there either way. Yeah, but thanks for that. It's very kind. Of LVHN, it kind of has been the culture that they've. When you think of your predecessors, at least in my time here, we're all docs. Uh, sort of, it's kind of been part of uh, part of uh, the culture. Yeah, I think it's been a, a, a bit of advantage, and I don't think it has to stay that way. And I think you can do this many different ways with all sorts of wonderful leaders in finance or operations. So, it does not need to be a clinical leader. My sense is, again, from my vantage point, that there's an advantage right now. Uh, not just with COVID-19, but with the, you know, our discussions about value and providing higher quality care at a lower cost. Um, that really requires rallying the clinicians in the organizations. And, you know, uh, uh, having had that background, I can easily throw a flag when I see that they're, uh, they're disagreeing for reasons that I know are not quite quite fair. Uh, but uh, they also know how to flow, throw a flag at me, believe me. Uh, so uh, it, it's a good dance. You know, it makes me think of, you know, with, with, with much bigger dollars, it reminds me a little bit what you've been going through, what we have done as a chamber, becoming the sixth largest in the nation now because of the partnerships in other regions. And I guess I wanted to ask you, with the reputation the Lehigh Valley has as being an amazing hospital, 
the balance of going in when you make quote unquote acquisitions in new areas, be, getting people to know to know you, to trust you, to like you as this new hospital that's emerging uh, in their region, where in fact you may be requiring a smaller hospital and being able to add so much to it. But there's always that balance of how much do you change, how much do you not change in the culture of these existing organizations? Yeah. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, I think that, you know, the, the technology revolution we're witnessing, the digital revolution, uh, where you can get whatever you want 24 hours a day, and it better be nice people delivering it, or I can go somewhere else. You know, the stickiness and loyalty that we used to think about in the 80s and 90s and 2000s in any business, frankly, just doesn't matter, okay? The loyalty, is a, it has a short shelf life. It's as long as you're nice to me, good to me, and you give me a great product as a reasonable price, I'm sticking with you, I'll change tomorrow. So I think that just puts the burden on us to do a better job. I mean, we have to be able to satisfy folks. We can't have you waiting an hour to see your provider when you have the appointment. Your time is important too. So I think that uh, we've learned a really good lesson over the last few years. Now, keep in mind, hospitals are, you know, are, we're, we're a two-century going concern as a business. Um, it's not easy to change uh, the way we do things. But clearly, hospitals have always been very uh, uh, almost centric to us. You know, this is the way we do it. We have these services. We do them well. You'll appreciate it if, if you get in. Um, that, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. All those things are true, but you have to go the extra step and say, on what terms do you want to meet your provider or your doctor? Um, would you like a video visit? Would you like to e-visit? Would you like a phone call? Would you like to chat online? Uh, would you like a virtual visitor? Would uh, maybe uh, I'd like to be seen this time? Hey, we have to make all of those available so we can reach out to the patient and connect with them. We just looked at a lot of our data here, by the way. So we are now back at, at Lehigh Valley Physician Group, which is our employed physician group. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we see about 10,000 patient visits a day. All right. And, uh, and we, during the, the crisis, we went down to about 3,000 in the first week or so. But within three weeks, we're back up over 6,000, 7,000. And that was largely related. It was a split of about 75% was video visit, phone visit, e-visit. Because we, we already had a great platform. We were doing 90 video visits a month. But we actually pumped up that platform with additional hardware okay, and support and to allow us to do what we did during the middle of COVID, well over a thousand video visits a day. So, and what's happened now, we're back to 10,000 visits a day, but the complexion of those visits are very different. Now about 25% are video visits or uh, e-chats or phone visits. Now the challenge for us as a business is, will we get paid for those in the future? Right now, our, our, our payers are being generous by saying, hey, we'll pay for any way to keep your patients connected. That's not, I'm, I'm pretty sure that may not last. We're already hearing <laughs> rumblings. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there, there are new channels to keep people engaged. And, in, and in, me in the medical world, patient engagement is the holy grail. So if it takes a phone call or just keeping you healthy, keeping you on track, whether it's a phone call and we don't get paid much for that at all, uh, or an e-visit and we get paid not that much for that. Virtual visits and face-to-face -face really are about the same. I mean, you can get tons of information, almost equivalent information there, I think. Um, 
whatever it takes to keep them engaged, it's priceless at the end of the day because patients will say, okay, you're right, I'll fill my prescription. And then they don't show up in the hospital with a crisis that costs a lot of money. So any engagement is good engagement, and we're going to learn how to, to exploit those channels. Yeah, I know how important that proactive uh, treatment is to you. And I know that, the, and maybe in a sense, this has escalated that a little bit with, as you just said, some of the video uh, uh, relationships now people have with docs. Uh, uh, that makes me think, and I've been, I always love to tell you or ask you this question because uh, I, I've been here my whole life and I can remember again, anytime you had some kind of a very serious ailment, uh, you went to New York or Philadelphia. And I think we are proud now as people in the Lehigh Valley that you can go to Lehigh Valley Health Network and get that and get whatever you need done at top quality. Uh, but it, it took investment. And I, I love the balance that you have to, you know, you have to have positive cash flow, not too much, or you're, you're, you're sort of, that's not a good thing. People aren't happy about that. But at the same time, to have great treatment, you have to have the right equipment, you have to pay for the best people. So that balance, and I think you've done a great job of that, but that always interests me, that balance of, of making a first-class hospital at the same time making all the numbers work, which ain't easy. Yeah, it's a challenge for every hospital. There's no no doubt about it. Um, you know, I would say that our temperament is that we spend a little bit more than our than uh, many of our peers or similarly sized organizations. We're about three point four billion now with the coordinated health uh, acquisition, about nineteen thousand four hundred colleagues. Um, so it's become a pretty big operation, and you know. But to get to the future and deliver the care you want uh, to deliver, you really have, we see this era in a, in a 150 year history or so, um, we see this era as um, a time to spend money. And it's the worst possible time to spend money, okay? Because our economics are tough. Uh, pressure on, on uh, revenue maximization is not a good strategy anymore. We have to reduce our costs. Operating income compression is, is extraordinary, but we still have to spend the money. Why spend the money? Because, you know, we have a vision, we've had a vision to build much smaller hospital campuses if we build them at all, okay? Why? Because if you can have a radical prostatectomy, okay, with a single port robot, which we've done many of these right now. So you get one hole, okay? And you come in at seven in the morning, you're discharged at 10 at night. I mean, uh, how many beds do you need? You don't remotely need as many beds when you know operations are getting you home the same afternoon after a hysterectomy. Uh, you know, it's remarkable. Knee replacements, going home the same day. Hip replacements, going home the same day. These are, these are wonderful advances but it just kills revenue, uh, at least in the old paradigm. So we just have to get, you know, suck it up, tough it out, you know, understand that that's the new paradigm. It's good for patients, number one. So chase it down as hard as you can. And if you have the right contracts with the payers that where we both are aligned in that case, how do we reduce the cost of care and improve quality? There's enough money in there to make all of us whole. I really believe that. All right, I want to ask you, so for me, I, I often have, I'm thankful, you know, we have a rotating a board like you have, and I have a chair, and I have an executive committee, and right now, during this COVID situation, again, we what we'd make a living, we really can't do, uh, bring people together, but the point is, uh, my officers have been amazing. Um, I guess I want to ask you that, your volunteer leadership, if you will, you know, community leadership, the chair of your board, mm-hmm. how much do you uh, lean on them? I mean, how important is that in terms of of guiding you in term, in direction is it all internal? Or are you are you managing up to the board, and, and is that helpful? No. 
Oh, no, no. We, we have an extraordinary board and we rely on them heavily. Uh, throughout this uh, uh, crisis, by the way, our last large meeting that we had in our organization anywhere happened to be a March 11th board meeting. <laughs> that was the last large meeting we had. Starting the next week, we went to weekly phone calls with our entire board. So every Wednesday morning, we, had, we started with a meeting with our board. We gave them an update on what the financial condition of the organization looked like, which was really ugly. Um, uh, we talked about the uh, innovations, the new dashboards. We profiled the actual dashboards as we built them, as you're building the plane, as you, you put. As we built those dashboards, we shared it with them to give them confidence. We were looking at uh, the right things, what our, what our uh, stock on hand was for neuromuscular blockers, because you're paralyzing a lot of people on ventilators. You know What was our inventory for ventilators? We had a weekly call to make sure they knew everything that we did so that they could give advice. We have wonderful uh, board members that have a lot of good sense in business. And they, by the way, and many of them are running their businesses in the middle of COVID-19 and we're learning from each other, frankly, you know, uh, we got a lot of good input from our board throughout that time. So I think that that was very important and certain our board leadership, our board chair, I, I spoke with a couple times a week um, and, uh, and that would be seven days a week whenever we needed to 24 seven. So we had a very close relationship. We actually just this past week stopped the weekly call, mm-hmm. but understand that we actually added two different, uh, several different formal meetings around finance and board meetings. So uh, we were very connected, and that's very important for any organization to have good guidance like that. Yeah, the same with us. We, you know, our meeting hall meeting schedule has changed, and where the emphasis is. But uh, that's important, though. And I know you do have a lot of really bright business leaders, and they're helpful. I could ask you a million more questions, but I, I know our time is limited. I'm going to bring Lauren Spence in. She's going to have you some really hard hitting. I'm sure, uh, Dr. Nestor, you're. I don't know. I'm get ready for it. this. Is all I can say. Okay. Hi, well, thank you, Tony. Hi, Dr. Nestor. Thank you so much. I have already learned so much from this conversation. So we're so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much for joining us. I have two quick questions for you. So first, how do the healthcare needs and preferences of younger generations differ from the generations of our parents and grandparents? And what is LVHN doing to meet those needs? Yes. Yeah, so not so much. Uh, I didn't really notice it much during COVID, honestly. Uh, a whole much of a change, but we have, uh, we've been getting strong feedback from young professionals. We have our young professionals group at, at Lehigh Valley Health Network that is extremely professional. I mean, they are organized. They are, they have a purpose. They have a passion. They want to understand how they fit into modern healthcare delivery. A lot of those things uh, that are, are there, they don't like, and they want to change them. And they have great ideas. Honestly, I think uh, early on, uh, I would go back, say, three, four, five years ago, we didn't listen enough, all right? And guess what? Here I am talking about the importance of technology and, and loyalty in a very different way. And that's what they were saying five years ago. Frankly, it frankly took this COVID-19 crisis, I think, to, to really help accelerate our organization's thinking. Um, uh, they've, been, they've been wonderful, and, uh, and we rely on them. They are the future. It's funny you mentioned young professionals uh, within your organization because that's very closely related to my next question. So my younger sister recently graduated from the University of Virginia with a nursing degree. And as she and so many of her peers are beginning their careers, I was wondering what advice you can offer to the recent graduates who are entering the healthcare profession. Yeah, well, hey, that's 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 a great one, uh, actually. So I went, and I had this is was ironic, but uh, during the crisis, I went to each of the ICUs 
and each of the COVID-19 floors and ERs at our campuses in the order with which COVID hit. So I went to Pocono first, then I went to Muhlenberg, then I went to Cedar Crest, then Hazleton, Schuylkill. And at each place, I met a brand new, uh, spanking new clinician, one way or the other. Someone's a resident or it was a nurse or it was another t- another technician of some sort. And boy, oh boy, I think I, uh, Dr. Whalen is our chief medical officer. He and I talk about this with regularity. Well, this is the single best time to be graduating because you're getting immersed in a pandemic. Now, you might say, oh, that's scary. But I would tell you, if you follow the rules of infection control, I mean, and I did, I went to those sick places and came home to my family with confidence at the end of the day. If you follow the rules, you do okay. And boy, but to learn uh, about sterility, to learn about how not to spread disease, this is a great time for young folks to be graduating. I would say embrace it. Remember, it'll be one of those stories you tell when you're, you know, uh, 50 years or behind you. And it's, uh, I think it's a wonderful time to, to practice medicine. You know, one thing I wanted to say, uh, Brian Esther, one of the things that Dr. Whalen did for me, which was really important, he taught me how to tie a bow tie. I, I used to have, <laughs> you know, these clip-ons, and he taught me how to do it. It took him, it took him longer, I think, than he, than he wanted it to, but he, but he finally got me there. Yeah, he, he, I think he sleeps in his bow tie. Don't do that. Okay. Right. One last question, Brian Esther, and that is, did you think, because I know a lot of the young professionals we just mentioned will be watching this, was there ever a time when you started your career? I mean, if you think back when you were a young guy, did you ever think you'd be president of a large hospital system like this? Or was it a vision? No, never thought of it. Wasn't a vision. Um, honestly, I, I just, uh, I loved everything about healthcare and embraced every opportunity and uh, said yes to basically everything, <laughs> every opportunity that came by. Probably not a good idea in terms of work-life balance. But that's what I did. And I'll tell you, I had a, just so many opportunities uh, to be involved, whether it's operations or finance or business initiatives or uh, uh, new uh, ways of delivering care. Uh, just, just saying yes to any opportunity that requires innovation. And uh, you wind up meeting a lot of people. You wind up learning a lot. Uh, and I think diversity really helps uh, trying to, uh, you know, dance in different fields. You know, and uh, and that as an ER doc, that was fairly easy because we're we know about this much about a lot of things, uh, and and that was helpful. So I would just say uh, you, you don't have to have that vision. I I certainly didn't. Just uh, work as hard as you can. Say yes to opportunities. Give it a try. You may fail, but uh, it, you'll learn something from it. Brian Nestor, you're an incredible guy. I guess the best compliment I can. Uh, make to you or give to you. And that is, I talk to your people and they across the board always say that the Brian Nestor you see is the Brian Nestor you always see, whether it's in the boardroom, uh, whether it's uh, having lunch or whatever. So uh, thanks for what you do. You're a really good guy. And I'm thankful that we have you in the Lehigh Valley. You're a very kind guy, Tony. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's just such a pleasure to be with these great colleagues. So thank you kindly for those words. All right, Lauren Spence, you can close us out. I think you're ready for that. My pleasure. Thank you, Tony, for having me on the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Nestor, for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with and learning from you. And we appreciate the work being done by you and your entire team at Lehigh Valley Health Network. You really are changing the game in our community. To our viewers at home, my pleasure. To our viewers at home, we hope you enjoyed this installment of Game Changers. And we look forward to connecting with you next time. Stay tuned on the Chamber's social media pages for our next episode. We'll see you then. 